Let me invite you to take your Bibles now and, and turn with me. Our sermon text for this morning is Matthew chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 9. And we'll read it now as, as an act of worship. These are the words of the Lord. Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother why, uh, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men." My soul longs for your salvation. Amen. Would you please be seated? Let's pray now and ask the Lord's blessing. Father, many of us, before we enjoy a meal, we bow our heads and we pray and we ask that you would bless that food to the nourishment of our bodies. We bow our heads now before You, O Father, and we ask that You would bless this meal to the nourishment of our souls. Remind us, dear Lord, whose we are. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever heard the dreaded words, I need to speak to the manager? (laughs) If you've uh, worked in retail, certainly you've heard those words at some time. I want to talk to somebody who's actually in charge here, somebody who can actually do something about my complaint. Let me see the supervisor. The question can be intimidating. You have reached the point when someone wants to talk to the higher-ups, someone where the buck stops. When it comes to the human person, we might ask a similar question. Who's in charge here? Who's in charge of you? Over your soul? Who has the authority? Who can tell you what you must do and what you must not do? The answer is pretty simple, isn't it? God alone. Do you know that? God alone has the authority to tell you what you must do and what you must not do. Let me read to you from Westminster Confession, chapter 20, paragraph 2, because we, we, in, in all of our thoughts about what happened in the Reformation, we think about justification by faith alone and the clarity that came to that precious doctrine uh, of worship. But, but one of the things that the Reformers emphasized was the freedom of a man's conscience before God. Let me read to you from Westminster Confession, chapter 20, paragraph 2. God alone is Lord of the conscience. There's nobody between you, in other words. And hath left it free from the commandments of men, which are in anything 
contrary to His Word. You hear that? This is a precious doctrine. No man has the right or the authority to command you to do anything that is contrary to God's Word. Why? Because God is a direct authority over every man. And so for our instruction, He has given us His Word and His Spirit. His Word alone is infallible. His Word alone is inerrant. His Word alone is sufficient and authoritative. And we say those things Sunday after Sunday so that you will remember that you belong to God. Why? Because He created you. No one else did. You did not make yourself. No one made you apart from God, and therefore He is the only authority that you have to obey. So your conscience is free from the commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to His Word. Yet, yet, is your conscience free from the commandments of men, which are in anything consistent with His Word? Somebody's pinball machine is calling. You see, there's the key. Where Scripture is commanded, you and I are required to obey. Where Scripture is contradicted, not only are we not required to obey, now think about this, not only are you not required to obey where Scripture is contradicted, think about this, you are required to disobey where Scripture is contradicted. Why? Because you belong to God alone. And He is your authority. And what we learn from Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 9, is that godless men reject God's law. And God rejects lawless men. Godless men reject His law, or His authority, you might say. And God rejects lawless men. Now, this was a central platform or a central plank or a central doctrine or a central point of the Reformation. They looked to passages like this when they were saying, you, Roman Catholic Church, stop telling us that we have to obey all of these traditions that were created by man, that we have to worship Him by doing these certain things, that we have to do these because God has not commanded them. And God alone is the Lord of the conscience, not you, not the Pope, not the priest, not councils, but God alone. And so the passage that we are considering this morning, that notice with me, if you turn your eyes back to it, it is concerned with worship. It is concerned with worship. Look, look what we read in verse 9. In vain do they worship me. Now think about that for just a second. Imagine if that was our call to worship. In vain, you worship me. In vain, you go to the temple. In vain, you go to the synagogue. What is God saying to his people? When you speak, I don't listen. Wow. Think about if that was the charge against us. I don't hear your prayers. It is empty and meaningless to me. This passage is concerned 
with worship. And here, you and I have to understand worship then in a context that is broader than just what we're doing right now. Here, Jesus is referring to worship as the whole Christian life. It includes our worship practices, surely, but it's not exclusive to what we do in congregational worship. Because what he's talking about is your life of obedience to God. Are you obeying Him and submitting yourself to His law, or are you submitting yourself to men who contradict the Word? Are you dreaming up laws that men have to obey that don't come from His Word? Notice what we encounter in verses 1 to 2, and I'm still just setting some context for you here. Notice what we encounter. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. So it's important here so that you get the full gist of what's going on. I I want you to understand who the Pharisees were and what they're asking Jesus about. So the Pharisees are not priests. This was a voluntary organization of men. You had the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes. You you could think of them a little bit like Republicans and Democrats. They all had political views. But the Pharisees were an organization that you could, anybody could join it, any man could join it, as long as you pledge yourself to obey God's word. And they saw themselves as kind of the reformers of the day. We are bringing back the pure religion. We are bringing back pure obedience to God's word. But what they did is they didn't appeal directly to God's word. You remember, Jesus has already indicted them. You remember? He said, have you read Exodus? Have you read 1 Samuel? Or are you just appealing to your confession of faith and that's what you go by? Do you know the word? And here they come to him and they say, well, what, why, aren't your, why aren't your disciples washing your, their hands? What they're asking about, why do they violate the traditions of the elders? What they're asking about is, is why don't you observe all of the interpretations that have been handed down by the rabbis through time. You see, they compiled these in what we might call law books. They had the Mishnah and the Targums, and these were authoritative, and that's what the Pharisees are bringing them back to. Why don't your disciples do what the rabbis have said? Let me read to you from Shulchan Aruch which is one of the most authoritative books in in Judaism. These are the things that require one to wash their hands with water. And some mothers will agree with all of these. One who gets out of bed. One who exits the bathroom or bathhouse. One who cuts their nails, removes their shoes, touches their feet, scratches or washes his head. And some say one who walks among corpses. One who touched a corpse, checked his clothing for lice, had marital relations, touched a louse, or touched his body with his hand. 
And one who did any of those things, if he is a Torah scholar, he will forget his learning. If he is not a Torah scholar, he will go out of his mind. In other words, God is going to afflict you. If you get out of bed and you don't wash your hands, you're going to go crazy. This is authoritative, Judaistic teaching. This is what the Pharisees are asking about. Why is it that your disciples don't carry on with all of these washings? And Jesus, in this passage, identifies that what you're doing is you're taking these traditions and you're elevating them to the level of command. God never said any of that. Now, did he deliver certain washings in the book of Leviticus that the priests were supposed to observe? Yes, he did. But none of Shulchan Aruch comes from God's word. But they're treating it, do you see, as scripture. And this is where we get to our primary points. And we notice that godless men reject God's law. And secondly, we'll notice that God rejects lawless men. Notice, first of all, in verses 3 to 6, that godless men reject God's law. How does Jesus respond to these men in verse 3? He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? That comes across with the force of a tidal wave. You can imagine, here are these scribes and these Pharisees, these men who are self-proclaimed masters of the law. And the Pharisees, the ones who alone have access to the scrolls, and these are the guys who stand up in the synagogue and read and interpret to the people. And here Jesus is calling them men who slander the law of God. It's a surprising statement that the Pharisees reject his law. They break it. Why do you break God's command for the sake of your tradition? They're treating it with contempt. How are they doing that? Are they actively going out and disregarding the law? No. How are they doing it? They're doing it by treating their teachings as authoritative as God's word. And notice that in verses 4 to 6, Jesus gives an illustration of his point. Verse 4, for God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So that for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Wow. Can't you imagine that in that moment, there were some people in that audience who would have been blown over by a feather. Can you imagine the Pharisees and the scribes in that moment, their jaws clenched or open, gasping for air? How dare you? Because all of the audience around them, they were looking at the Pharisees, again, as the ones who are restoring pure religion to Israel. These are the ones who, at the drop of a hat, can quote to you from Rabbi Rashi. They can tell you what he said, all of the teachings of the rabbis, but apparently couldn't very well quote Exodus. And here, in just a few phrases, completely undercuts these authoritative men in the front of all of their peers. 
Now, Jesus illustrates how they violate God's command, honor your father and mother. Isn't that interesting? That he went there of all the things that they taught. He didn't address the washings at all. He addressed honor your father and your mother. Why might he go there? Well, because it has to do with authority, doesn't it? We understand that when God is commanding us to obey our father and our mother, He's not just talking about fathers and mothers. He is talking about all authority. We have a responsibility to honor every authority. And the effect of their commandment is that they make void the Word of God. Notice what Jesus says there. Verse 6. For the sake of your tradition, that this man may say, what you have gained from me is given to God's. In other words, it, it is your sacrifice from me. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the Word of God. Treating tradition as though they had the authority of Scripture, made the Scriptures empty. You've removed its authority. What you've done is you have usurped God's authority and you have put yourself in His place. What you're doing is you're telling Israel, listen to me, I have the pure interpretation, don't listen to God. You're making it void. Do you remember what the first commandment is? The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. What does that mean? What does it mean when we say, you shall have no other gods before me? What is God commanding you to do? Well, ultimately, He is commanding you to yield yourself first and foremost to Him. He is your ultimate authority. This is why the writers of the Westminster Confession can say that God alone is Lord of the conscience. If they said God plus man, what are they doing? They're saying, well, we're violating the first commandment right off the bat. God demands from you absolute faithfulness. He will not share you with anyone else. He demands your reverence. This is why He gave you life. So that with every breath, you might utter His praises. With every step, you might walk in His ways. With every grasp of your hand, you might serve His purposes. That redound to His glory. Your obedience is to God first and foremost. He made you. Man did not. If man's law, therefore, contradicts God's law, you are not required to obey it. You did not make yourself, so you cannot be a law unto yourself. This is what happens in the book of Judges, isn't it? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Well, what are they doing? They're violating the first commandment because they're treating themselves as gods in place of God. It's idolatry. When Martin Luther was put on trial, they required him to recant the things that he had written in his books. They had them stacked there before him. 
And he went home and he, he said, let me go one night and I'll think about it. Because he knew the gravity of what he was doing. And he came back as he's standing before his judges, including John Eck. And he says to them, my defiance of papal authority, I cannot betray it. He said, here I stand, I can do no other. Why did he say, I can do no other? Is it because he, he didn't have the ability of will to make a different choice? No. It was because he knew that if he relented and gave in to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, his soul would be damned and he would be violating the very word of God. I can't do it. Why? Because it would be to betray my loyalty to my great God. I can't do anything else. One of the applications that we take away from this is think about corporate worship. One of the reasons, if you notice in your, in your bulletin, I often put little insights into worship. You may never have noticed it, and that's okay. But one of the things that, that's important for me and our elders, it's important for you to know is where, where in the Bible do we get the practices in our worship? Do you see how this principle is being played out? It's being practiced. We cannot require you to do in worship anything that God doesn't require you to do. And here's the opposite side of that. We can't take away from you in worship something that God commands you to do. This is how He limits the authority of everyone He's placed in authority. All of our practices, both personal and corporate, must be linked to God's Word. What about the civil magistrate? What about our governing authorities? We believe in the separation of church and state, don't we? Are they required to obey God's law? And I would answer that question with just a few questions. Are they made by God? Is your president, vice president, secretary of state, Secretary of Defense, are they men made by God? Do they owe him obedience? Yes, they do. This is why in Romans chapter 13, Paul says they are what? Servants. Literally, the text there says they are deacons of God, the civil magistrate is. His obligation is to look to God's word and apply the justice defined there in society. Without that, we have no society. On the ecclesiastical side, this is why uh, in 1 Timothy 3.6, church officers uh, must not be novices or recent converts. Why does he say that? Why can they not be novices or recent converts? Because they must be masters of God's law. If they aren't, what are they going to do? They're going to be tempted to appeal to experience rather than to the Word of God. And make you lords of themselves. Notice, though, that Jesus doesn't condemn tradition utterly, does He? He doesn't say, how dare you have traditions? So you as a family, maybe you have traditions in your home. You, you, you do certain things in family worship. You pray, sing, whatever that might be, or privately in your own devotional life. 
You get up at 5 o'clock and maybe you read for 30 minutes and you pray in a certain way, in a certain order. And that's your tradition. Is, is Jesus condemning that? No. What he's condemning is the moment when you stand up and you say, I get up at 5 o'clock, so everybody needs to get up at 5 o'clock. I read my Bible from cover to cover every year. Therefore, everybody needs to read his Bible uh, cover to cover, year to year. I pray in this order, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, and everybody must pray in that order or you will violate, you will, you, you will violate God's blessing. You won't receive it. That's what Jesus is talking about. There was, um, there was a controversy a few years ago. Um, a man um, wrote a book titled Raising Kids God's Way. Some of you may, may have heard of it. It was very popular for a period of time. And he defined all the absolutes that a Christian family had to do to raise their kids. Now, notice what's the title? God's Way. And so what's implied there is if you don't do the things written in my book, you're not doing it God's way. Ultimately, this particular author was excommunicated from God, from the church. Why? Because he was teaching people that the traditions that he'd established and wise though they may have been, and you may have used the book. And it wasn't a sin to use that, that book, but what was a sin is when he elevated his teaching to the level of God's law. So that if you violated what Gary said, you are in sin. John Calvin says, now as he permits believers to have outward ceremonies, that's not taken away, by means of which they may perform the exercises of godliness, so, here's the key point. He does not suffer them to mix up those ceremonies with his own word as if religion consisted in them. Do you see what he's saying? It's not, he's not saying don't have ceremonies. Don't, have, don't ever have anything private, private ritual that you obey to, to draw you near to God. But make sure that that is linked to God's word and make sure that you understand it isn't on the level of his word. In your family and personal life, it's good to develop traditions. But never teach that it is a sin to violate those traditions. This is what was happening in Jesus' day. Notice, secondly, that these godless men have rejected God's law, so also God rejects lawless men in verses 7 to 9. Jesus tells them two things. Their godliness is false, it's pretend, and their worship is false, it's pretend and meaningless. Notice what he says, verse 7, hypocrites, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, Jesus begins here by linking his statement, his condemnation of these Pharisees back to Isaiah. Why is that so important for us to remember in the context of the gospel, 
Because what Jesus is saying, in essence, is you are no better than the same shepherds whom God used to condemn Israel. You're not a blessing to this people. You are a condemnation to them. And you are just as hypocritical as those men whom God uh, sent into exile in Babylon. That's what you are. In verse 8, he tells them that their godliness is false. Look what he says. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What is, what is hypocrisy? What does it mean to be a hypocrite? You could, you could go to the Greek language and you could say, well, it, it meant to be a play actor where you, you wore a mask to play a part. Um, C.S. Lewis says, whatever circle of friends you are in, that's who you are. You, in other words, you're not a consistent man, but you, you're a chameleon. You change to match whatever that situation is. Here it's defined as someone who sings God's praise, but whose heart does not love Him. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 29, verse 13. And He strongly condemns these men. Their godliness is rejected. It's only pretend. It's only surface. It's only external. They're not in their hearts. They are not seeking to promote godliness in their community. What, you know what they're really concerned about? By promoting their own authority, what do you think they are concerned about? Promoting their own praise. You see, a man could join this organization of the Pharisees and automatically he is lifted up a little bit in the eyes of his friends. He could say, well, I'm a Pharisee. Paul said that. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, didn't he? And I had all this external godliness. And, and when you talk about me and your circles, you might say, he's a Pharisee. And, and all of a sudden the conversation goes into hushed tones because, well, he's a Pharisee. And Jesus in this one moment says, yeah, it's all fake. All you're interested in is your own praise. You are not interested in promoting the godliness of your fellow man. You are interested in being exalted yourself. Their godliness is rejected and their worship is rejected. Notice what Jesus says in verse 9. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Um, you've read Ecclesiastes. And you know that over and over again, he talks about emptiness. This is vain. It is empty. It has nothing to it. It is, has the same amount of substance as cotton candy does. You bite into it. There's nothing there. Jesus says to them, in vain do they worship me. I think this is something that should rest upon us heavily. That it is possible to go through all of this ceremony, everything that looks religious and exalted, it is possible to go through all of that, to open your mouth in song, to open your mouth in prayer, and God not hear one word of it. It is meaningless. It is not received. This is what the Puritans called will worship will worship. Ultimately, you are worshiping your imagination of God, not God Himself. Ultimately, you're worshiping yourself. 
You remember how the Pharisees accused Jesus of having a demon? Remember that? Matthew chapter 12, verse 24, they said he casts out demons in the power of Beelzebul. Now the shoe is on the other foot. And here in this moment, in this public space, Jesus accused the Pharisees of being godless, lawless men. You don't serve Yahweh. You don't teach in His behalf. You don't represent Him to this people. You're lawless. And God rejects you. In a sense, quoting Isaiah, He's saying, you are just like your fathers whom God condemned to exile. This passage shows us that godless men reject God's law and God rejects lawless men. Here's what you pay careful attention to in this passage. Jesus said, in vain do they worship me. These words, worship, it encompasses the whole Christian life. Since all life is worship, and the principal part of God's worship is what? Obedience. We reject His law when we substitute human tradition for what He has commanded. This is why we want to be so careful only to include in worship those things which He has explicitly commanded. To do other than this is to impose on your conscience. In worship proper, why don't we light candles or include interpretive dance or prayers to saints? Why don't we do that? Because there's no command from God. God hasn't commanded them. And if God hasn't commanded it, He isn't pleased by it. But we also cannot withhold from you something that God requires. Think of the Lord's Supper if we went two or three years without giving you the supper. I hope that you'll go and meditate on this passage and the strength of it because this applies to the everyday Christian life. What does God expect of you? Are you comparing every aspect to His Word? Is He a real authority in your life? Can you say that, that you are convinced by conscience and by the Word of God that you are doing right in His sight? He expects of you what is recorded in His Word. And if it isn't recorded in His Word, He doesn't require you to observe it. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you understanding now why your word says that your people come before you in fear. Because we come before a holy God. And you expect that every jot and tittle will be fulfilled. And as we think of your law in this way, we remember Paul's instruction in Galatians. That to us, the, the law is a tutor. It leads us to Christ. We remember, Father, that, that even on our best days, 
we will never perfectly fulfill Your law. We always need the blood of Christ to cleanse us of our sins. But we thank You that the work of Your Holy Spirit is to conform us to this law, this righteousness. We ask that You would give us a zeal for it first in our own lives before we turn and apply it to others. And help us always in our application of Your law to others share the same gentleness that You have shown to us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.